Hello and welcome to the Otter Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Page, and today we are meeting the woman Harry Houdini called the most extraordinary fake medium and mystery swindler the world has ever known. Today on the Otter, we are talking about Anne Odelia Distabar, also known as Editha Lola Montez, Madame Massant, Swami Viva Anata, and a host of other names. So grab your crystal ball, your clean robes, and guard your savings account, and let's go! back we're here my otters were back we were gone for the winter and i bet some of you thought that that was it for the otter i bet that you thought you'd never see us again but like that one college friend who you can always swear has died after a long night out we have come limping back in wearing two different shoes that do not belong to us with a black guy and a mcdonald's bag for a hat we just needed to sleep it off behind a dumpster and we're back and ready for another go round. Seriously though, I appreciate those that waited for the return and the understanding that sometimes we need a break. I say we, but I am the otter and sometimes I'm having a hard time. For those that don't follow the TikTok on top of the podcast, I also work a full-time job and I'm working on my master's degree and I got a little overwhelmed with some personal things that led to me needing to take a break. But I never forgot about you guys and my long winter's nap was well needed and used and I am back and better than ever and the otter perseveres. I actually had a weird little spike in my audience over the break, so any new listeners who are here because of the Mother God documentary that came out, um, who then followed the wormhole to my episode, welcome. Let me introduce you to my usual little spiel. For the returning listeners, welcome back. For the new listeners, welcome, welcome to the Otter Podcast, where we are a trail mix of all things unknown, unsolved, and just plain odd. If you have an idea for an episode you think would be fun, good news, I do listener requests. So if you want your own personalized episode, you can send me an email at theotterpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and know what you want to hear from me. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you really enjoy it, or if you don't, please leave a rating and review. They really do help. Let me just say, I hope everyone had a fantastic holiday, whichever you celebrate, and great wishes for the new year. I don't know what your New Year's resolution is, but if it's to listen to more episodes of The Otter, then Extra Cosmic Brownie points to you. If it's to get back into the gym, great news, I'm a fantastic workout companion. What better motivator for the treadmill than listening to my unsolved episodes? Resolution to eat better? There's a whole episode about a tick that makes you vegetarian. Wanting to be more spiritual? May I interest you in some deep dive with some cults? Safe to say the otter is here to be your buddy in the new year. But enough plugging, on to the show. I thought it would be fun to enter the new year with some whimsy. So we are banging down the door with a con woman who was so hilariously bad, but also just kept getting away with it. Today we talk about Anne Odelia Distabar, a woman of many names and al- aliases, and husbands, uh, cons, trials, mysteries, and one of the only swindlers to ever gain the admiration as well as horror of Harry Houdini, who you probably know as a magician and escape artist, but who was also an absolute god at unmasking charlatans and dragging them through the mud. He dedicated an entire chapter in the 1924 book, A Magician Among Spirits, to Distabar, who he called one of the most extraordinary fake mediums and mystery swindlers the world has ever known.
1849, a baby was born in Kentucky, maybe, whose father was John C.F. Solomon, a professor of music at Greenville Female Institute in Harrodsburg, possibly. And this baby was named Edith Solomon, allegedly. And Edith Solomon would one day grow up to be one of the greatest con women the world has ever seen. Or at least that's who we think Anne Odelia Distabar was born as. The problem is we don't really know. The actual identity of Our Lady of Honor is not something anyone has ever been able to verify. Although George C.T. Solomon, the son of the good professor, would come forward later to testify to being Distabar's brother, she would actually deny this, and Anne herself would claim and name so many different identities and backstories that would have made Ancestry.com nauseous. However, for most historians, Anne Odelia Distabar is believed to have started life as Edith Solomon, or possibly Anne Odelia Solomon, which was listed in census data and in a family bible that became part of an 1888 court case. And like her difficult to trace backstory, Anne was said to be quite the handful. Her brother, which I will say with finger quotes, would later state, Whenever she enters a house, peace departs, and with it, everything portable. Nothing is safe in her hands. As a young girl, and into womanhood, Edith Solomon would frequently run away from home. She would be gone for increasingly long periods of time, and when she returned, she would regale her family and friends with long-winded tales of romantic trysts and fantastical lovers who had kept her away for so long. These stories, however, were clearly a little more imagination than reality. Make-believe romances were the least of Edith's escapades, however, as she was also a known thief and left a trail of debts across the United States. The New York Sun is quoted as saying about her, she skipped out of Kansas City leaving debts and a reputation as a beer guzzler. However, Edith, who going forward we are just going to call Anne, was not a great con woman. She was caught frequently, and her method of getting out of trouble was to call upon some overt acting abilities and feign a dangerous illness. She was known to have an abscessed tooth from which she could suck blood. She would then cough and faint and expel the blood from her mouth in order to convince whatever unfortunate shopkeeper, cop, or good citizen that had grabbed her that she had tuberculosis. Similar to if you started wildly coughing in public in these post-COVID times, it was a good way to clear a room quickly. Unfortunately, this method didn't always save her hide. In Dayton, Ohio, while trying to sneak out of a hotel without paying for her stay, she was quickly grabbed by the manager. Anne began her usual bloody coughing spiel, but apparently overplayed it for the in-house doctor who did not buy her acting. It was apparently such a bad performance that he threatened to use a hot iron to open her mouth and look inside when she refused to allow him to examine her. Seeing that the jig was up and sprung up, tackled a nearby priest who had come to perform last rites before trampling his group of accompanying nuns. In the ensuing scuffle, she managed to outflank all her pursuers and escaped the hotel, leaving a collection of bruised religious figures, a disgruntled doctor, and a hefty unpaid bill behind. This incident, as outrageous as it sounds, was not a one-off, and Anne was followed across the countries by creditors, debtors, and those she robbed blind. 
Anne is considered to be a rather terrible con woman, but always managed to get away with what the New York Sun called a general rumpus, a hair pulling match, and the devil to pay generally. It was around this time that Anne realized that Edith Solomon had too many marks on her name to keep doing business. And whether it was this reason or simply the flight of fancy that had followed her all her life, she began to reinvent herself and started taking on the myriad of names and backgrounds that leave us confused and uncertain to this day. She is best known for claiming to actually be named Editha Lola Montez, the resulting love child of the scandalous and well-known affair between King Ludwig I of Bavaria and the dancer Lola Montez. She claimed to have been born in secrecy in Italy in 1854, but spirited away to be raised by foster parents on a or a convent, depending on which story you heard. Now it is no shock that the story of a royal babe resulting from a steamy affair would have much more interest than a simple Kentucky bumpkin's humble upbringing, and Annie utilized this by going on tour. Giving herself titles first as the Countess Lansfield or the Baroness Rosenthal, Anne went from place to place, enthralling her audiences with this fictitious tale of childhood she did not have. She even eventually began calling herself a princess. Somehow, during this time, she even managed to convince the Montez estate to pay her a $300 settlement as the supposed abandoned daughter of Lola. Now, remember that this was all before the advent of the internet, easily available census info, or even reliable newspaper systems, so you could actually get away with claiming a lot if there was nobody to outright contradict you. While the lecture series put a few coins in her pocket, Anne's real scheme was her myriad of swindled upper-crust lovers. Applying herself as this poor, misbegotten princess, she rubbed elbows, knees, and shoulders with the echelon of high society and found no lack of gullible young men who wanted the thrill of adding a possible hot-blooded royal to their address books. She would lure them in before clearing their pockets by claiming to have been taken advantage of by banks and incompetent investment agents or just needing a little help paying some bills till it all got smoothed out. Once she had determined that she'd swiped all she could from her target, she would leave town and move to another with a bigger fish to fry. Using this method, it is estimated that Anne cleared a quarter of a million dollars in 1870 currency. This lavish funding led her to a life of luxury and also a problem with opium-laced cigarettes. This addiction would later send her to a hospital with what would be called nervous exhaustion. But Anne didn't always play at being a princess. Just like she had other identities, she also always had another con up her sleeve. Now this is where stories about her start to get muddled. Like I said, because she used so many different identities and stories about herself, it's kind of gotten difficult to decode what happened in her life. But she somehow ended up in a psychiatric hospital in Blackwell's Island. Now this may have happened as part of a normal attempt to outwit a con and attempt the tooth trick. However, at the hospital, they quickly figured out what she was doing. And in order not to go to prison, she claimed insanity and got sent to Blackwell. Some other stories have it that this occurred after she tricked the Vanderbilt heir into spending all his money buying shares from her. She did this by playing a medium. Now the Vanderbilt heir's father had died and she came to him claiming that his father was visiting her, telling her that he wanted him to invest in these certain stocks, but these stocks were ones that Anne actually owned. 
It didn't take long for the heir to figure this out, and he went to the police. And quickly realizing that the jig was up, once again claimed insanity to get out of prison. Unfortunately, I can't find which timeline is correct, but somehow she ended up in Blackwell's Island, and that's important, so let's get there. Anne did not like being in a psychiatric hospital. It was a big step down from being a princess to a patient. However, she couldn't just leave, so somehow Anne got a hold of a knife, and in a desperate attempt to escape, stabbed her doctor. Except it wasn't her doctor. It was a nearby medical student named Paul Noel Massant, and he did not die. He survived. But Anne did not escape, and in order to keep from getting transferred to real prison, she sat back and played up the insanity act in order to stay at the hospital. Anne did have the good luck that in order to be discharged, she just needed to convince the doctors and nurses that they had cured her mental illness. Given that she had never been mentally ill, it didn't take long for Anne to work this out and subsequently stop pretending to be. She was cleared and released. And just nobody cared that she stabbed the medical student. In fact, she did something that is going to shock and appall you. She married that medical student. That's right, she and the guy she stabbed tied the knot in holy matrimony and she became Madame Massant. And it apparently was a real relationship. Anne was happy with Paul, and they even had a daughter named Alice. During their marriage, Anne stopped conning people. She stopped all crime. She really just played the part of happy wife. Now, we can't know for 100% certain that this wasn't some weird long con by Anne, but almost everyone is of a mind that it was a legitimate relationship. Unfortunately, Paul would pass away in 1873. Now a widow, Anne would return to her old ways of making money and begin her conning with a new twist. She decided to enter the world of spiritualism. Madame Massant began to ply herself as a professional hypnotist. Anne turned out to be really very good at cold reading and had considerable success at this con in her social circles. However, being the widowed wife of a doctor didn't get you close enough to the deep pockets that could fund the luxurious life that Anne had begun to miss. In order to get to the bigger fish in the pond, Anne would once again need a new identity. She achieved this through another marriage, this time to a General Joseph Hubert Distabar. General Joseph was actually a bit of a fibber himself, as the closest he ever came to political high standing was a minor government position in West Virginia. He was actually a French artist and the designer of the West Virginia State Seal, and by no means a real general. However, real war service or not, the elevation from being the wife of a doctor to the wife of a general put Anne in the social circles she wanted to be in. The general was actually married with children when he met Anne, but was so taken with her that he abandoned his family to run off to New York and start fresh with her. It was here in the Big Apple that she donned the moniker she would be best known as and became Anne Odelia Distabar, hypnotist and medium. Now, in the upper crust of society, the practice of speaking to spirits from beyond the grave was all the fashion, and the wealthy could afford to indulge in this kind of hobby. Anne made a great deal of money offering to talk to dearly departed Aunt Fanny about where she hid her brooches, and so on, but she was also a bit loose with her finances. Anne liked luxury. She liked to spend money and live well, and even working as she did, she struggled to keep up with her own habits. And soon, hypnotism had lost its thunder. 
And so Anne began to rely full time on her ability to read body language and make educated guesses about the loved ones that had passed on. But this wasn't a special skill. There were plenty of mediums at the time, and if Anne wanted to keep the wolves away from the door, she needed to come up with a real special act. Spirit paintings became the ticket to keep her head above water. Anne began to advertise that not only could she communicate spoken messages from the departed, but she could also use her connection to the other plane to create visual images and paintings. She would bring guests into the seance and seat them with a blank canvas in front. As she hummed and spoke and communed with the deceased, the canvas was suddenly filled with images that they wanted to show to the living. Often called spook pictures, Anne claimed them to be the result of last messages to the bereaved from those they had lost, but seeing an opportunity for more profit, she then claimed that she was able to speak to the great artistic masters of history, and that using her, they were unveiling new artworks to the public. However, although she claimed these new pieces to be created by the likes of Michelangelo, those that examined them actually found them to be quite bad. They appeared to be copied unskillfully from a much better piece. It would come to light that Anne would copy the old master's work on a specially prepared canvas that had been layered with the same type of chemicals that were used to develop photographs. When exposed to the touch of a wet sponge, the picture would magically appear. Anne was also fond of making seemingly empty notebooks suddenly fill with the writings of the dead, especially dead philosophers such as Socrates and Aristotle. However, it would later be revealed to be a simple sleight of hand trick, in which a blank notebook would be replaced by a pre-filled one when Anne would wrap it up. However, this revelation didn't successfully dissuade everyone. Anne's best customer was a man named Luther Marsh, one of the richest and most respected lawyers in New York. Marsh, unfortunately, was as wealthy as he was gullible, but this most likely was due to the tragic loss of both his wife and daughter, who he was desperate to communicate with. Anne would use her mediumship skills to conjure these messages from Marsh and produce paintings which she claimed to be from his past family. She then claimed that not only did his family want to speak to him, but famous painters such as Rembrandt and Apelles. Marsh was an ardent enthusiast of the classical world, and Anne used this to produce a number of spook paintings from figures in it such as Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and so on. She even summoned the ghost of the Roman statesman Apius Claudius Cassius, who informed Marsh that he was his direct descendant. Marsh would soon collect a large portrait of Apius as his most prized possession. Anne would conjure these and many more historical figures from Marsh as well as continuing to speak to his wife and daughter. In return, Marsh gave her loads of money and even eventually his house as his daughter had apparently told him he should through Anne. Anne would take Marsh's house and turn it into a spiritualist temple of truth. This proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back from the living family of Luther Marsh and the general public. Concerned about his mental state after giving his house to someone already proven to be a fraud, they made a complaint to the court about Anne Odelia Distabar. And shockingly, they weren't the only ones. Stage magicians also came forward demanding something be done about the Distabar woman. Seeing that this was a form of employment taken seriously by its practitioners, and while they loved to perform illusions, 
They resented anyone using their tricks to scam people out of money by claiming it was real. A number of prominent New York magicians began to publicly show how to replicate all of Anne's tricks with the notebooks and the paintings and bash her as a con woman taking advantage of the bereaved. The combination of both complaints displays in a scathing testimony from Anne's brother George where he stated, I wouldn't believe her under oath in any circumstances led to the arrest of both Anne and her husband for conspiracies to commit fraud. The trial was long and scandalous, with testimonies from several professional magicians who aimed to explain how each of her miraculous tricks of illusions were performed. During the trial, Anne was also visited by the ghost of Roman orator Cicero and a council of ten, who suggested she should return Mr. Marsh's property, which she was suddenly happy to do. Since she decided to return the house to Mr. Marsh, the court decided to lessen her sentence, but she was still charged and her and her husband spent six months each in prison. Unfortunately for such a highly publicized trial, after her release from the pen, she found it exceedingly difficult to operate in New York. She was unable to continue her old con of mediumship. She tried a short stint in the theater but was not any good at acting, and in the end she had to leave. It is rumored even that she faked her death by pretending to have jumped from a bridge into water below. However, Anne would reappear in other cities, such as Chicago and Cincinnati, under the new name of Vera P. Ava, which was enough to fool the local police. She had a collection of new names that she would trade out as needed as she traveled city to city, utilizing con after con until people realized that Vera or Laura or whatever she was currently calling herself looked a lot like Anne Odelia Distabar in a bad blonde wig, and she had to pick up stakes and move again. She not only traversed the US, but also London and South Africa where she got a new husband. Frank Jackson joined up with Anne and together they started to attempt a new con. They started to found a number of different cults under, you guessed, a whole bunch of new names. None of these cults ever had any great success. Their best known one, the Order of the Crystal Sea, was a mystical organization based around fortune telling. At least that's what they told potential clients. In reality, they were using it to blackmail them. When they were caught, they did a month in jail before being run out of town. This time they took their gig to London where they started a new cult called the Theocratic Unity. Taking the name Swami Laura Horace and her son, which was really her husband, Theo, they recruited members into their mystical cult all while stealing from them. This was going alright for a while until a member noticed and reported them. The couple was arrested and tried in September 1901 in England. This time, it would hit international news, because they weren't just charged for the thieving. Over the course of the trial, some members came forward to describe what happened and some of the rituals involved in the cult, and the charges were up to theft, rape, and sodomy. The U.S. quickly figured out who Swami Lore and her son-husband really were, and graciously let the English courts know who exactly they were dealing with. They were convicted and sentenced to seven years each. In 1906, Anne, or Swami Laura, or Editha, or whatever you want to call her at this stage, was released on parole after less than five years. She immediately hitched up her skirts and left London and headed back to the good old US of A. And honestly, nothing could keep her down. She immediately tried to go back to her old cons, but she was just too recognizable now and no one would fall for her scheming. 
and then she just disappeared. The last record we have of her is in 1909, and then nothing. We don't even know when she died. One of the most prolific, fantastical women con artists in history of the world just vanished. Came in with a bang, went out without even a whimper. It's a shame we don't know what happened to Anne at the end of her life, but one thing you can't say about her is that she didn't have the balls. She just never gave up, no matter what happened. And she lived quite the exciting life. We know she had children, but we actually have very little record of them. We also don't really know what happened to her husbands after she grew tired of them. Anne lived however Anne wanted to, and she didn't let any man court or societal expectations stop her. She was by no means a good person. But damn, was she a driven one. Well, that's all for this episode. So what do you think? Which of Anne's identities was your favorite? What do you think happened to her? Do you think her marriage to Paul was real love? Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and leave a review. The Otter Pod is also on TikTok. Come follow us there. Have a suggestion for a show? Send me an email at theotterpod at gmail.com with your request and whether you'd like me to mention your name, your alias, or nothing at all. Remember, this is the otter side, so give me something cool, creepy, or confusing to deep dive for you. If you like the show, leave us a review. They really help. We're excited to be back. The Otter Podcast posts every other Thursday. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on the otter side. <laughs>